when did worship start for you this morning? And, and I think of the church setting oftentimes, right? And, and the, the church lingo is, who's doing worship this Sunday, right? And we oftentimes associate it with the music. And so uh, the worship, generally speaking, from just the lingo that we use is the music piece, right? Well, what happens when the music comes to a stop? Does it, does it take a pause and then we hear a, a message and then we start worship again? Well, what about before you even show up? Is, is, is your life reflective of worship since the, the moment you woke up this morning? And does it extend beyond just the end of a Sunday service? It begs the question, does it not? And we are here as a collective gathering. There's something really special about that. And I don't want to diminish that. But one of the reasons why Psalm 100 came to mind this morning is I think there's, there's something about worship uh, that tends to lack in current contemporary church settings, if I could say it that way. And so we're going to be digging into that a little bit. And Chris Gorman this morning uh, prayed over the message. And I just I, I have to reiterate this because I, I can't articulate it the way that he prayed it. Um, but we do experience a sense of freedom here in America that goes beyond other countries and the sort of freedoms they experience. And this is a reflection of the sort of freedom that we experience in Christ. And the Bible tells us that those who are set free are free indeed in Christ. We are free. We've been released from the shackles and the bonds of sin in order that we can freely experience worship with God. And so it is an exciting thing for me as I wake up in the morning to experience and engage in fellowship with you every Sunday, I get excited at the thought that I get to come before God's people and hear God's people raise their voices up to him. And many times as we're singing, I do want to hear the, the, the instruments kind of come to a little bit of a, a, a silence. And, and this is more for me to hear the people sing. And that happened a few times this morning. And it was beautiful. The, the, as, as the instruments came down and the volume up here kind of diminished, I, I heard the volume in, in the congregation go up. This, these, these are this is volume being lifted up to God, the Father Almighty, through the work of the Spirit that God has given you. The freedom you experience is the freedom that God has given you to worship Him in this manner. And He is pleased by it. And so I'm so grateful that I get to be here in a part of this church body. God's church exists for the purpose of worshiping God. What we experience here on a Sunday morning is intended for God's people. And I'll never forget, um, I went through a church assessment, and it went really well. This is a church plant assessment. Um, and there was, one, there was one area where I think there was a little bit of friction. I was asked to share a short 10-minute message, which is impossible to begin with, um, in front of a group of people that were going to assess me. And a part of the charge was half of the congregation would be believers and half of the congregation would be unbelievers. So throw into your message a, a, an invitation to invite them into relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? And I know the motives were pure. I know that their intentions were really good. And I shared a message and I did not throw an invitation out there for people to join in prayer to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they caught on to that as I expected that they would. And they asked me the question, where was the invitation? And, I, and, and so my response to that was, I thought it was preaching to a congregation. And, and, and they said, well, the, the, the bounds were that you should be throwing an invitation because half of the people were unbelievers, right? This, this setting exists for God's people. And now I'm not saying that, that unbelievers can't join us. I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't invite those friends who are questioning their relationship with God. I think that's wonderful. And I think they experience the love of God in the setting. But this setting, this corporate gathering, this, this collective worship is for God. And it is, it, is, it is given through God's people, through the work of the Spirit. Uh, and we're in Psalms this morning, and I know that Psalms, uh, it's a huge book, and it's a lot to cover. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I'll tell you, it's like popcorn in my mind. And I'm just reminded of this, okay? And so when I, when I, when I make popcorn with my kids, I don't, do it, I don't do it with the microwave. I actually pull out the pan. I do, it, I do it the fun way, as I like to call it. And I put the kernels at the bottom of the pot. And I put a layer of whatever, the butter, if you prefer butter. We tried olive oil, we did coconut oil, just all, we're just experimenting a lot, you know. And you turn the heat up, and as you're waiting, you're wondering, is this thing actually going to happen? I feel like it was longer than the last time, even though it's probably the same amount of time. And then finally, that one pop comes up. 
And, and that's the signal, right, that there is something going to happen with the kernels. And then as you, you continue to shake this pot around, the kernels begin to explode in this amazing crescendo of, of popcorn to the point where the lid has to come off. We're pouring it, and there's just popcorn everywhere. The kids are just having a blast as a result of, of this experience that they're having. But the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because Psalms, towards the beginning, there's hardly any mention of praise towards God. It, it's the sort of book that meets you where your emotions are at. But it doesn't keep you there. It doesn't keep you in the sorrow. It doesn't keep you in the challenges and the hard times of life that you're experiencing. No, it is intended to, to direct your attention towards the praise and worship of who God is. And if that example isn't sufficient enough, we're about to experience fireworks tomorrow, right? And you don't just throw everything up at, at, the, at the beginning. You throw up a few small fireworks at the, at the beginning, and then you wait and watch that thing just explode in this massive lighting ceremony, that's what Psalms is like. In fact, um, the, the 250 or so times that it's mentioned in Psalms, 50 occur in the last five chapters in Psalm. And in the last chapter alone, it's mentioned 13 times. And so you get the sense that God desires worship and praise. And we are in Psalm 100, but that is, it is, as I said, the crescendo. It actually starts in Psalm 95, and then it leads up. There's a symphony of worship that's taking place, a symphony of praises that's being lifted up to God. And then by the time you get to Psalm 100, it's just this massive explosion of praise. And I just want to give you a taste. Just one verse out of each one. Uh, Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 96 and verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Psalm 97, all worshipers, in verse 7, all worshipers of the images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all of you. Psalm 98 and verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Psalm 99 and verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen. Praise, praise, praise. And now we're at Psalm 100, and there is this amazing recipe that is provided for us in what worship can look like at a high level. Amen. Amen. Praise, praise, praise. There is an element of action that is required in worship. That is the movement of the hands and feet. The fact that you are here this morning is a testament to the service that you have provided to God through worship, worshiping him. And then there's an element of the attitude that you're not to just come here before God's people reluctantly and, and, and just in an angry sort of tone, but you're here to come with joy. So there's an attitude of joy that's being lifted up to God. And then there is an element of acknowledgement which is rooted in God's word, the very reason why we experience salvation. God spoke, and here we are. This morning. So if you will stand with me for the reading of God's word, Psalm 100. This is the word of the living God. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us this morning. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that, that you have provided us not only the knowledge of who you are that stems joy and service to you, but that, that you tell us what it is that we are to think about you. This is how fallen and wretched we are, that we need to know exactly what we are to think of you, because you define the terms of worship. We do not. And so we ask that you would set aside any selfish ambition. If any of us are here to experience worship specifically for ourselves, that we would relinquish that, that we would raise our praise to the one true and living God. You are the one and only. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. That doesn't mean that we don't get something out of worship. 
Like, we don't come here to receive, we come here to give. God is the object of our worship. God is a consumer of worship, but we also get something out of it, too, because that's simply how God operates. He says, you are mine, and now everything, as Chris Gorman said earlier, is now yours. Amen. We have an inheritance that goes beyond anything we could dream. I want to talk about the importance of worship. Why is worship important? And the simple answer is this. Worship is important because God's ultimate purpose in your life, God's ultimate purpose in your life is that you would worship him. At the center of everything God commands us to do in scripture, God has called us to one calling that governs all other callings, and that is to worship God in spirit and in truth. If you are a born-again Christian, you are a worshiper of God. Those two words are not mutually exclusive. They are one and the same. If you worship God, you are one with God. You are a Christian, a follower of Christ. Did you know that you have been saved for the purpose of worship? You have been saved for the purpose of lifting your praise up to God. And there isn't a better passage in my mind than John chapter 4. This is one of the most comprehensive passages in all the Bible on worship. So if you will turn to John chapter 4 for just a moment with me. This is Jesus and his interaction with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And starting in verse 4, look at this. And he had to pass through Samaria, it says. Now, it wasn't like a one-way street uh, it's, it wasn't that there was fires on each side and he had to go through the one alleyway. In fact, there were many reasons why the Jews would want to avoid the Samaritans because there was a disagreement that took place years ago between the north and the south, doctrinal differences, idolatry, all those things kind of came together and they, they just disassociated. And so the Jews' visions toward, vision towards the, Samarit- the Samaritans was not good. And so, but it says he had to, right? And so there's this element. The Spirit is now leading Christ into this setting. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So you see now that she understands that this is a little bit strange that a Jew is asking her to draw water because that's not the norm. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that kind of living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, and I think this is very appropriate, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus is testifying to the truth that he is the living water in this setting. Jesus is better than water. The water that sustains you in this physical life, Jesus is better than that because he will sustain you into eternal life. Steve Lawson said it is not merely a good way Nor is it the best way to get to heaven through Jesus. He is the only way. So it's not like there are these multiple roads that lead to one salvation where Jesus is the only way to salvation. And then in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I don't know about you, but it would be so strange getting called out on some of the more intimate things when I run into a stranger. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yes, indeed. Now, the question that has been on her mind throughout who knows how long is now being posed to Jesus Christ. 
Because now she knows she's standing before a prophet and she's had a question on her mind that she's been wanting to get off of her chest and here it is. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it is in Jerusalem that is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, which by the way, this term woman, it's not like it's derogatory. Okay? He's just saying, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Very important. We worship what we know. Okay, and we're going to get there. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And mark this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking these kinds of people to worship Him. The Father is seeking people that will worship Him in truth and in spirit. And how is it that anyone can worship God in this way except that they are one with Christ as they lift their praise up to Him? You see, there is this synonymous nature of worship and being a child of God that's presented here before us. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. You see, this woman's confusion grew out of the society's perspective of what worship is, which led to the belief that worship is something that you do at a prescribed time, it's something you do at a prescribed manner, now, don't get me wrong, I know that there were, there were ways in which God had desired that worship, but when worship becomes a means that's uh, directed by society, that's an issue. When it's directed by God's word, that's the direction that we are called to go. She wasn't sure of the place. And so she asked Jesus, where should we worship? And Jesus responded that worship is not confined to here or there, but that worship is stemmed from knowing God and making God known. Everything Jesus did ultimately led towards worship, not just any worship, but acceptable worship towards God. Psalm 22, which speaks of the death of Jesus Christ even, gives us the ultimatum. That the reason why Jesus came and died and paid the price was so that the congregation would worship him in verse 25 and 27. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul defines a Christian as one who worships God in spirit. If you are a born-again Christian, you are a worshiper of the one true and living God. Paul says this about Christians. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Father seeks those who will worship him. The primary reason that we are redeemed, listen to this, is not to escape hell. Now, that is a benefit, <laughs> okay? I mean, granted, nobody wants to experience that kind of spiritual reality, but that is not the purpose that God has redeemed you. Nor has God redeemed you in order that you would experience the fullness of his riches for all eternity. That is also a benefit, and we will experience the riches of God for all eternity. The reason why you have been redeemed by God is so that God would receive worship from you and from me. The central theme of the Bible is worshiping God. It is the theme of redemptive history and is a theme that manifests itself into the realm of eternity. I mean, think about Revelation. I mean, his throne is surrounded by people lifting their voices up in praise to God. And this is for you young folks out there, okay? Because there was a time when me and my wife thought, I'm not ready to go to heaven yet. I just want to experience all the fullness of this life before I go to heaven. I have to get on my knees and lay prostrate before God for all eternity. As if that's the sort of nature that God wants, is just a bunch of prostrate people bored to tears in heaven. Listen to me very closely now, okay, because the, the most extravagant experience that you've had in this earth whether it's camping or seeing a mountain or playing games or being in family environments or you know, enjoying that car that God has given you or whatever it is, won't even come close to what you experience in heaven. Because those things that God made for you to enjoy is the same God who is going to put you in heaven. I mean, think about that for a minute. So our attitude is not rooted in trying to just make the most of this life. It is to make the most of what God has for you in this life before you go home to be with the Lord. The sum of our existence then can be summed up in these two words. Worship 
God. Worship God. And even so, it is a struggle, isn't it? In fact, as long as the remnants of of the sinful flesh remain, we will never be able to worship in perfect harmony with the Lord. Our motives are mixed, our flesh is weak, and our minds and our affections are prone to wander. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I mean, every moment we are faced with the trial of whether our attitude is going to be directed towards God or whether it's going to be directed towards me. This is why God instructs us so regularly to worship him with gratitude. Okay. And I want to call out the elephant in the room, okay? Because to some of you, it sounds like God is this divine megalomaniac. As if he's just asking you, praise me, praise me, praise me. Now, when I come up to you and I say it like that, it just sounds crazy. None of you is going to come up and say, yes, I praise you. Why then would God say the same thing? It seems egocentric. It seems selfish. And some might even find it irritating that God has to somehow demand gratitude out of you. As if he's, he's, he's sort of begging you, would you please just show gratitude towards me and praise me? God does not need your gratitude. God doesn't need your praise. God instructs us nonetheless that he is to be praised. He's not like the mythical gods where the more you pray to him, the stronger he gets. No, he's already all that he is, and he always was. And he's not considered selfish because unlike us, he deserves the gratitude, and he deserves the worship. God says, worship me. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2 to 5 speaks of our relationship with God, right? The Ten Commandments. When you look at the first three commandments of God's moral law, God's moral law, the first three are directed towards God. Worship God acceptably and worship God appropriately. The reason why God does and the reason why God can instruct us to worship is because worship, listen to this, is the climax of moral uprightness. Worship God and thank God because it's right. And do it because it's good. The problem is not on God. It's not like God has a problem and so he needs to come to you and ask multiple times. The problem is on us. The reason why God has to instruct me so regularly to show gratitude and to praise him is because I am prone to wander. And so it is totally appropriate that God, who is the definer of moral law, would come to you and say, this is morality. This is the apex of what it means to be good that you would worship God acceptably and appropriately before him. God wants us to do what is right, and he wants us to do what is good and reasonable, so we ought to worship him. If God said worship whatever you want, make the most of, of your time here on earth, that would be idolatry. And that would be a lie, because that doesn't represent our God. Rather, he says, worship me alone, and so he commands the ultimate act of righteousness, worship God. Now, God doesn't only ask us to worship him, but he also directs us how we are to worship him in an acceptable manner. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then in verse 29, he even goes on to say, our God is a consuming fire. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 to 18 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is, listen to this, acceptable to God. Now think logically with me for a moment, okay? Because if there is an acceptable way to worship God then would hold true, then, logically speaking, that there is an unacceptable way of worshiping God. Who gets to determine what is acceptable or not before God? God gets to determine what is acceptable worship before him. It's kind of like when I'm talking to people about religion, inevitably this comes up every single time, okay? I think God is like fill in the blank. Right? And this is, this, is what, this is what those conversations are like nowadays. And now I'm not suggesting you do this, okay? Months ago, Chris said, don't be the weird Christian. 
So don't be this Christian, okay? So this is not instruction on how you ought to approach people. But if somebody comes, it just makes you want to say, I don't care what you think. You don't get to define the terms of God. God does. God tells us how we are to worship him. He tells us who he is, and he tells us the manner in which we are to worship him. What we know about God isn't because we thunk it up. You know, I call this silly putty doctrine. This is where you just kind of form your own doctrine, and it just looks like this deformed thing, okay? But God has it figured out, and you can trust in him on what that looks like. Not only does God tell us how we think about him, he also explains how we ought to worship him. In other words, God has the authority not only to call us to worship, but he also lays out the terms of worship to us. So then it begs the question, right? How are we to worship God? How we worship God matters. If you find yourself spiritually out of sync with God, the chances are that you're probably not worshiping him accordingly. On the other hand, nothing will accelerate your spiritual growth more than worshiping God acceptably. And still we resist that. <laughs> you know, there's something inside us that doesn't necessarily resist the idea of worship, but we resist being told how we are to worship God. We resist it by saying things like this. Why can't I worship the way I want? What's in it for me? I, I just think when we stand before God and we're giving an account of everything, I don't think that's how the conversation is going to go. I'm glad you made the most of your time in service. No, it's going to be directed to your motives, to your heart before God. And I, I think that sometimes we make it very fluffy for the Christian. I think it's going to be terribly uncomfortable, even for the Christian, okay? And that when we're faced before God, that we're going to have to account for the motives of our heart. But I know that ultimately God has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and the end is to worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, what is worship, and what is authentic, and what is acceptable? Psalm 100 provides the necessary elements at that high level. Like I said, there's this exciting recipe of action, attitude, and acknowledgement before God. But for the purpose of this message, I want to offer up a simple definition of worship. And if you've got your outline with you, you can fill them blanks here. It is a spirit-led response of praise to God based on all that he is and all that he has done confirmed in our actions, our attitudes, and our acknowledgement toward him. Or to put it another way, worship is when we fulfill the reason for why we exist. There are three major elements of worship that we're inclined to. Individually and collectively, action, attitude, and acknowledgement play a role in how we ought to worship. Okay, think about this for a moment. If somebody serves, like they're, the, they're just the servant out there, does that in itself define worship? Or is there more to it? There have been times where I've served with people who just do it begrudgingly. They don't want to do it. Or there's some motive behind it that just has some sort of selfish intent. I just want to be seen. What if worship could look differently? What if worship could be stemmed from joy, right? What if worship is directed towards an object, towards a person, God himself? And then there are people who are just joy-filled, but they have no idea what they're joyful about. The first on your outline is action, and so let us take a closer look at action. The life of a worshiper is inclined towards serviceable action to God. Acceptable and authentic worship, listen to this, must include an element of service to God. It must include an element of service to God. Remember, James says, faith without works is dead, and he says, be doers also and not just hearers of the word. Jesus said, you know that you love me and that you obey my commandments. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 25 says, consider how to stir up and provoke one another to good works, not neglecting the assembly as is the habit of some, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Stir one another up to what? Good works. And I, I, I just have to say this because we just kind of came out of the tail end of something. He says, meet all the more as you see the day approaching, okay? Don't, don't meet all the less. Meet all the more as the day approaching. And it dawned on me that God is sovereign over the universe. And when things happen around us that prevent us from meeting, and God is sovereign, there's a conflict at play. 
God desires that we would meet so regularly that, listen to this, the sovereign God of the universe would never create a circumstance where you cannot meet with people. And so we are obligated, according to God's command, to come together in joyful worship over who God is. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be careful, okay? I know there's an aspect of wisdom at play here, but I'm just saying that God desires this gathering of worship and praise to him. What does it look like to serve the Lord and do good works? And this is going to vary from person to person based on the spiritual gifts that God has given you. But the ultimate purpose that is true for everybody is this. Our service is to make God known. Your service rendered to God is for the purpose of making God known. You got out of your bed this morning and you made your way here and you're sitting down in order to make God known. When you give towards God generously, you're doing it for the purpose that those funds would be used for the intention of making God known. And I know that here at Timberline, you, got, you all give so generously, it blows my mind away how God uses that to expand his kingdom. And I'm just so thankful for that. It is an essential component in the worshiper. And listen to this, Philip, when he told Jesus, show us the Father and that, that will be enough. He was challenging Jesus. Like, I just want to see the Father, and that'll be enough. And, and, and Jesus said, well, you've seen me. What more do you need to see? Like, you, if you want to see the Father, look at me. And if that's not enough, look at the works that I do. So in the same manner, we're called to serve God in a manner that makes God known. So that if somebody comes up and says, show me Jesus Christ, and that'll be enough for me, you can say confidently, have you not seen me, and you don't know who Christ is? Like, you represent the very work of Christ in your life in order that that light would shine in the world so that people don't have to ask those questions. And if they question that, say, well, look at the works that I do if that's not enough for you. Action is essential in the life of a worshiper, but it cannot stand alone. Look at what Psalm 100 would read like if only the element of action was there. Make a noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence Enter his gates and his courts. Do you see what's missing? Attitude, joy. Like it just sounds so boring. I mean, people view just service, 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 do, do, do. And I know I've said this, okay? That's do, do. Like you're not just called to, to just do works. You're called to do works joyfully with God. Which brings us to the second element of worship, attitude. The life of a worshiper is inclined to an attitude of joy towards God. Acceptable and authentic worship must include a function of the heart. Praise is not true praise if it's not coming from the heart. It becomes a stage play. We live in a fallen and cursed world, and I know that we will never get this right. Nonetheless, we are called to have a sincere and reverent attitude towards God. This requires yielding now to the work of the Holy Spirit in us and expressing our devotion internally. And I know we don't often see serving gladness in the same sentence, like it's this oxymoron. How can you have the sweat of your brow and also be joyful at the same time? The word serving glad, right? They're often associated with tilling the ground and it's, it's easy and it creates this, this, this attitude of, I don't want to have any part of it. But it's different with God. With God, it's different because as you serve, you serve in joy. This is one of the ways that we represent Jesus Christ. God takes truth and he grips the heart so that we are moved not only into action, but joyful service towards God. Richard Sibb said, outward worship without inward elements is an empty carcass of worship. There is a predominant emotion that's at play in worship, and that emotion is that of joy towards God. But we must beware because we can't fall into this temptation of pure emotionalism. We can easily get worked up into this emotional frenzy, right? That's what's happening out there, you know, where where we sing repetitively over and over and over again until the brain is empty. That's not worship. And I'm not saying that God can't use emotions. I am a person of emotion, and I love worship music. But sometimes it just becomes a way of emptying your mind out, not filling your mind with Christ. And when I run into people like that, they often tell me when they feel experience that kind of emotionalism, I felt God's presence. And then you ask them, well, what was it about it that made you feel God's presence? It just felt good. 
they didn't learn anything about God. Like, God was hardly mentioned, which, by the way, is just a huge pet peeve of mine when I sit in on a sermon message and the word Jesus or God not used once. It's a motivational speech. It's not worship. I know the feeling because I've been in settings like that where it just felt so good. So we have to be very careful to guard those emotions against the truth of who God is. Look at what Psalm 100 looks like when we add the element of joy to the equation. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Now what's missing in this equation? Acknowledgement. Well done. The process of elimination leads us to acknowledgement. I like it. <laughs> the object of your worship. Who is it? That, I mean, how can you serve if you don't know who you're working for? God is the one who receives worship. He is the reason why we serve joyfully. The life of a worshiper is inclined to acknowledge God from his word. Acceptable and authentic worship demands that the one true living God be known. Acceptable worship must include an element of the mind. Look at verse 3 as it stands alone. Verse 3 stands alone. It begins with the verb, no. No. This verse states two facts about God. One, that he exists. And two, that there's actually something to know about his nature. These two facts must be settled in the mind of a believer. So there is no need, as Paul said, to erect an altar to the unknown God. I think it's in Acts chapter 17. Because God has made himself knowable. He has revealed himself specifically in his word. What is it that you know about God? He is a person, and we can know him personally. He is spirit, and we can know him in the deepest spiritual sense. He is one, and there is no competition between him and any other God. He is a trinity working as one on our behalf, and the list goes on and on and on. He is holy and righteous and just and loving and caring and kind and patient. I mean, all these things represent the God who loves you. John MacArthur said, without the knowledge of God, all worship is unacceptable worship, not ultimately any different from the grossest idolatry. And we often associate idolatry with these man-made idols, right? The wood carvings, or you slice the chicken and you just sprinkle blood everywhere. You know that scene where you're like, I sure am glad I'm not a part of that scene. But idolatry goes beyond that. It goes to the point of making untrue thoughts about God. It goes to the point of saying things about God that's not true if that is the case and you're participating in idolatry, according to the Bible. The most basic need for worship, then, is this, understanding who God is. The enemy has taken a great foothold in our lives when he reduces God to our level and robbing him of his holiness and awesomeness. And I know at Man Camp we talked about the fear of God and and uh, we've been praying about this. And so at, at one point, I, I'm going I'm to bring what we learned at Man Camp to the congregation. Because I think this is a message that both men and women need to hear. That we are to fear God. And what does that mean to fear God? And I'm not going to touch on that right now. But there's just this aspect where fear is missing from two perspectives. One, it's missing in the, in the, in the facet that we don't view him as holy as he is. Or we don't view him as loving as he is. Both facets at play both play a role in the fear of God. And, and, we, and so you must know God to know that that is the reality. The right way to know God and understanding all that is revealed about him is to make the knowledge of God your primary pursuit in life. Is knowing God your primary pursuit in life? Everything that we talked about so far is fueled by this one exhortation. Know God. I told Raymond that if there was one, one slide that we could keep up there, if we only had one slide, it would be this. Know God. Because if you know God, then there's joy. If you know God, there's service. You see, you can actually kind of wrap this whole worship thing in the middle there where it says know God. This is what's called the chiastic structure in the Hebrew, where the first verse speaks to the last. The second speaks to the second and the last. And the middle right there just stands alone. Know God. If you want to know how to worship God, if you want to know what acceptable worship looks like, know God. Because if you know God, you have every reason to be joyful. 
If you know God, you have every reason to serve him joyfully. And anything less than that, you don't know God. Not in the fleeting emotions or feelings, but in the foundation of our knowledge and understanding of who he is. Satan and his influences have done a great deal of pain when he convinces the people of God that they can manage their way through life with one sermon message on a Sunday morning. One sermon message will not sustain your spiritual life throughout the course of the week. And so my charge to you is that you would open your Bible regularly. Um, If you must listen to 15 sermons throughout the week, great. If you need to go back two years and re-listen to everything that's been preached at Timberline, do whatever it takes, but get yourself exposed to the word of God in order that you would grow in your desire to worship him. Serving God in joy demands, as you have guessed by now, knowing God. This is why the central passage is know God. The foundation upon which our service is rendered and emotions are built on are not on the flimsy circumstances of our life, but on the foundation of God himself. The Christian faith is an appeal to the mind. And now listen, it's not absent of the heart, but still an appeal to the mind. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Worshiping God is the only logical and reasonable type of worship. Contemporary Christianity would have you believe that one's own view and idea about God is the matter at hand. Again, Satan has done so much in allowing this kind of thinking. Speak your truth. As if you can just make up your your subjective reality of what truth is. And I've been in circles like that where people, and then they're like, they're clapping. Like, there's this applauding that's taking place as you share your truth. And I'm standing there, I'm like, I can't believe I'm listening to this right now. And, and there's this beauty when you have another brother or sister in Christ in the circle, right? Because it, it limits your applaud. Because you're looking at each other and you're like, I'm not going to clap for you. I'm not clapping. That was just wrong. And so we don't have to entertain that kind of thinking. If you want to challenge contemporary Christian thought, here, here's a thought. He made us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we are his. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is the shepherd, and we are the sheep. He is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. You are his forever. What a glorious thought. Steadfast love is mentioned 46 times, 37 times in Psalms. Now let's take a look again, this time with all three elements of worship at play, okay, in Psalm 100. All three elements. What is the impact of worship to those and those around us? And what do you do with this information? Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. You see, God made you and then he made you. Like, he made you physically, and then he made you his. You are a part of his flock. (laughs) What a joyful thought that the God of the universe, the one who created everything, knows the most intimate detail in your life, has chosen to adopt you into his family and make you his own. What do we do with all this now? Like, I hope that you're as excited as I am about worship. Like, it's just there's something so special This is the lesson. Worship begets worship. Like worship generates more worship towards God. Go back to John chapter 4 with me for a moment. Let's finish this this storyline with the Samaritan woman. Verse 25. The woman said to him, 
I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. There's such beauty in that statement. I can't imagine what it must have felt like for her when Jesus had this as a response. I, who speak to you, am he. Imagine for a moment your heart has been set on worship so much so that you're faced with a prophet and you say, what is the right way to do this? And then you realize the object of that worship is standing right in front of you. The one who just called you out on your sin. Just then the disciples came back. What a coincidence. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? This is one of the saddest statements in all the scripture, in my opinion. The fact that the scripture had to tell us, no one said, what do you seek? Means they have no interest in leading this woman to the Messiah. Because our primary pursuit, remember, is to make God known. The disciples who have been following Jesus know this. And there's a Samaritan woman here who needs Christ. Not one of them said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. This is such a detail in the scripture that the Holy Spirit has chosen not to leave out. Listen to this. The woman left her water jar. She's been making the trip to sustain her physical life because she needs water. This is a regular aspect of our daily life. You would not survive without water. So her life revolves around getting that pail of water and taking it back home. Suddenly, the scene is empty. The water jar, which she came there initially, the very purpose of sustaining her life, is now left there at the well because she has received the eternal life-giving water in Jesus Christ. And she went away to the town and said to the people, Come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. I don't know about you, but I don't normally boast about stuff like that. I want you to know a man who told me all the bad things I did. Because I know they weren't good things. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. I'm going to skip now to verse 39. Listen to this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Worship begets worship. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we listen to this, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you see what I'm getting at? How is it that we can know these things about God and we're not drawn into action like actual momentum? That people would know who God is. That our, our ultimate pursuit is to know God and make God known. How is it that we can worship him, enjoy, and experience all the goodness of God and not invite other people into that relationship? Well, I would argue that there is a fear at play that's not directed towards the one that we worship. You see, our worship leaves a legacy behind, and it informs the next generation of who God is. Who you worship and the manner in which you worship it informs everybody of your eternal destiny. Now, I want to conclude with three questions as I close. And these are at the bottom of your outline, if you would like to take them with you. What do you know about God that brings you joy?
Now, I'm not saying you should muster up your joy. Okay, like I'm going to bring it this time. But what is it that you know about who God is that brings you joy before God? Does your joy, and in what manner does your joy motivate you into action, okay? Like you've got this joy now welling up inside of you. Now, in what way does that joy motivate you into action and service before God? And lastly, in what way do your actions invite others to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I was very intentional on how I asked these questions because you know God. Somebody informed you about who God is. Thank God for that. That that person just fearlessly came into your life and said, I want you to know this God that I serve. And then you're filled with joy. And then you act. And then someone God places before you for the purpose that God will work in that person's life now knows something of God. Discipleship in action. Know God. Be joyful. Serve. And then that person knows God. And just watch this thing just explode. Chris calls it gospel explosion. I'm just picturing a grenade being thrown out there, you know, just shrapnel everywhere, God's worship. There was a time in my life where I had no interest. I had no interest in worship. I had no interest in singing. I had no interest in Bible studies. I had no interest in God. And now it's all I want to do. I just, I can't explain it, friends. There's just something that God does in the life of a believer that just draws you into just loving momentum before God. He is just such an amazing person once you get to know him. So I pray that God would use you in that manner. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't plan for this weekend, you know, and, and, and some of the activities taking place, but I was invited uh, by Michael um, this afternoon. We're going to go and we're going to be doing some street evangelism. I'm just so thankful for that. You know, the fact that I've just been, my, my face has just been rooted in the scripture, and then God just says, now you're going to move. Like, you're going to put your feet where your mouth is now. And I'm just so thankful for that. And I pray that you would be motivated to action in the same way, that, that you would seek out the sort of needs that this church has, that you would seek out the needs that your community has, that your brothers and sisters have, that, that your coworkers have, in order that you would shine the light of Christ. Let's pray.